Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, one of Granta's best of young American novelists, Joshua Cohen, on his latest book, Moving Kings. Joshua Cohen was born in 1980 in Atlanta City. He has written a number of novels, including Book of Numbers, short fiction, including Four New Messages, and non-fiction for the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, London Review of Books, M Plus One, and others. And in 2017, he was named one of Granter's best young American novelists. Joshua's latest novel is Moving Kings, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Joshua, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So how would you describe Moving Kings? Uh, as a book everyone should buy immediately without listening to the remainder of this podcast. That's fair enough, yeah. we're done. So yeah, I'll be done. talking to right. Joshua Cohen. Right, you can just put in the cash <laughs> register sound right there. I don't know, Moving Kings. I mean, to me, it was really, it's, it's a book about um, really existing in two worlds. One is the world of uh, movers in New York City, what they call here removalists, right? And um, guys who work, um, you know, moving anyone's home, but also specialize in eviction moving. Uh, especially following the 2008 financial crisis when people are, are having their homes repossessed and are being evicted. And so these are people who kind of go in and forcibly remove people from their properties and, uh, and remove their property, store them, and sort of hold those possessions ransom. So it's, it follows a man who owns a, uh, a moving and storage company in North Jersey that really services all of the kind of greater New York area. Uh, and then the other half of the book really concerns his cousin and his cousin's world, and that takes place in Israel. And it follows um, members of a squad uh, who served in the Gaza War and uh, who are getting out of their compulsory military service. They're all 21 years old. And they're going on, on what's become really a tradition in Israel, which is sort of a time off or time abroad, a trip abroad, following the conclusion of their military service. And so, you know, members of the squad go to Southeast Asia, they go to South America, um, they, you know, they go to beaches, they go to, um, they go to cities in Europe and kind of hang out. And this one cousin comes to, comes to New York, comes to New Jersey, actually, and works uh, as a mover. And one of his friends from the squad follows him. And they begin to see some rhyme or some at least uh, similarities between the work that they were forced to do in the IDF and the work that they're doing um, on the ground in gentrifying Brooklyn and uh, Queens. In comparison to the, your previous novels, this is more narratively straightforward, perhaps less experimental, and more specifically briefer. Book of Numbers was a 600-page plus, and Wits 
yeah. over 800. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically with the length, was that a sort of conscious decision to do something shorter? I don't think so. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, everything has its everything has its 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 appropriate length. I mean, you know, four new messages was two hundred some pages, maybe even one hundred and eighty pages. A book of mine called The Heaven of Others was about a hundred something. I think people just, you know, everyone else is a size queen, not me. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, I feel like you know something like the internet, which was book of numbers, was really you know took that as its subject. You know, really required something that at least superficially had to sort of. It had to have a physical presence that rivaled, you know, the, the almost psychological size of the Internet, what, what we all perceive to be the enormity of the Internet. And, um, and certainly that there were just so many options there. This, you know, if there's any correlation between length and subject in Moving Kings, it's really that these are characters who are straightened. They're stuck in their fate, and they, it doesn't really feel like they have that many options. These are people who went right from their parental homes into the army, you know, going in at 17, 18 years old and then going through the army for three years. And, uh, and only then, finally, at 21, kind of coming out into the world. And it doesn't really feel like there are many options available to them, but they're not even sure what those options would be. They feel straightened into certain existences. They feel certainly straightened into certain political ideologies. And, uh, and so, in a sense, the book, you know, its brevity might reflect that, but certainly its terseness should reflect that, the idea that there, there are no kind of you know, fictional trap doors in which one can just conveniently slip through to live another life, that there are actually consequences to meandering from the path that you were given. And, uh, and I wanted to kind of duplicate or in some way bring to life that sense of, um, of being sentenced to life and of being kind of fated to, uh, to a certain existence. Let's look at the, um, the characters a bit more closely. So David mm-hmm. King, mm-hmm. Uh, rather symbolically named David King, King David, rather mm-hmm. clearly. Um, who is he? Well, thank God someone's accused me of doing the obvious thing for once, right? Uh, I mean, he's the, he's the owner of this, of this moving company, of this removalist company, King's Moving. And he is, you know, he's, a, 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 in my mind, a, a kind of a, an archetypal figure, especially these days. He is a, you know, he's the son of Holocaust survivors growing up in, in New Jersey. Um, he kind of always views himself as being forced by dint of certain discrimination to getting involved in a business that other people didn't want to be involved in, a dirty business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and his feeling was, some, you know, someone has to do this business, you know, and, and, and this is sort of the corner into which he feels he was painted. That's a sort of self-justification. Absolutely, absolutely. But, I mean, it's very much a, a self-justification of um, that is, I think, in my mind, emblematic of a lot of people of the white working class in America, people who you could almost, you would call Trump voters. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, the book opens with a scene uh, in the Hamptons at mm-hmm. a July 4th fundraiser uh, for a Republican committee in, in the state of New York for, for a person running for Senate in New York under the Republican ticket. And I think he has a lot of those delusions. I think that he, you know, he's a, a, a self-made man, mm-hmm. very much so. But that self-made man thing, despite his great success, has led to resentment because, you know, the, the amount of effort and psychological uh, distress and physical distress that it kind of took him to build this business, he's looking at his life in, in any way besides economic, meaning emotionally, his relationship with his family mm-hmm. is in tatters. And he's angry about this. And he feels like he still owed something. How, if I could be so successful, am I still not happy? You know, and I still don't feel like I have gotten what I deserve. And so he has a lot of that, a lot of those questions that I think um, are fairly, again, emblematic of a certain outer borough, if not, you know, uh, outside the cities, white working class in America. And at the same time, he's someone who has so f***ed up his life with his daughter, Tammy, that he's really looking to be 
for an alternate child. Mm -hmm. You know, he wants to be a parent to someone. He wants to be able to feel like he's a father figure, you know, like he's useful in some way because his, his relationship with his daughter is so poisoned. And so when there's this opportunity to bring over his cousin, Yoav, from Israel, he immediately leaps at this because it's this idea of now I can redeem all of the mistakes I've made as a parent and I can not only redeem them, but I can feel some sort of political conviction or I can feel some sort of political success in doing in doing so and some political identity. And you talk about him saying to himself, you know, why, I'm a success, why am I not still happy? But of course, all of his problems with his family are self-inflicted, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but but I think that, you know, it's very difficult to, you know, to blame yourself, you know, and it's also, you know, and, and also what is the point of blaming yourself? I mean, especially if you're a person like David and has various substance abuse issues, you know, you kind of see where blaming yourself takes you. I think a lot of his, you know, I, look, I didn't write a, a nonfiction book and I didn't and I, I don't necessarily have a thesis mm -hmm. about about the soul of America. But I will say there is a degree to which this type of person, right, um, was raised very much on a post-war American dream, right? Which is this idea of um, anything that I work for, I can have. And which, you know, honestly, compared to the Oprah dream of the millennium, which mm -hmm. is if I just want something, I'll get it, is actually, you know, a relatively laudable dream. But at the same time, you know, it's a dream that's, in this book specifically, is predicated on a job that, while entirely legal, is entirely discriminatory, and hurtful. Mm -hmm. It's a job that, you know, while his moving business, which comprises a certain degree of his, you know, of his of his business in Toto, is a regular business like anything else, the eviction moving, you know, is is all in the outer boroughs and the gentrifying outer boroughs, and it's it's primarily moving um, minorities, moving you know black people and, and and Latinos from their homes, usually clearing these homes so that they can be demolished to build new condos. And so, you know, in a sense, he has this. He has this American dream that he can't even interrogate because it's so deeply entwined in the story of his uh, generational coming of age. And this is, these are people that have been explicitly screwed by the subprime fiasco as well. We're talking about, you know, David's story is a story of immigration and success. Mm -hmm. But of course, that now is not available for this sort of latest generation of, of immigrants. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No, absolutely. You know, and, 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 and certainly not, you know, available for, you know, black citizens of America who, you know, have been citizens, official citizens since the end of slavery. I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, it, it's a clash of those ideologies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I think and I think that, you know, again, you know, those ideologies clashing or those or the inherent paradox within you know the dominant ideology of the american dream is something that is that that it's very difficult to be assimilated by you know by the baby boomer generation right i mean it's something that's you know very easily for very easy for a millennial like myself to spout mm -hmm. right in in a way this is the world i was raised in yeah. right it was a world i was raised in where um, the same economic opportunities that were available to my parents were not available to me. You know, the the ability to you know buy a house and have a family on you know even if I had a job that was less fucked up as writing, if writing is a job, like you know th those aren't available to people, and mm -hmm. that and that's true across the board in mm -hmm. Western Europe, right, and in Eastern Europe as well. You know, and and, and so in in a sense, the way in which a baby boomer post-war generation encounters these ideologies is typically at the point at which they've realized they've failed with their children. And when their children sort of either rebel against them or at least, you know, reach some certain age where they say, you know, dad or mom, like, this is, this is not right. The way that you've earned a living and earned the money to pay for my education that has taught me that this is not mm -hmm. right is in fact not right. You know, that, that's a very difficult thing for that generation to sort of assimilate. And so I wanted to write a book that talked about it from their perspective, that certainly talked about it from the perspective of the impacted parties, you know, who are being evicted. And I wanted to kind of 
do this perverse thing of having an Israeli soldier mm-hmm. being the almost only person in the book who can see both sides, and yet, of course, is perceived in certain ways by the people that he that he engages with. I'm Ben Goldacre. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So before we bring in Yoav and, mm-hmm. and Uri, the, the, the two soldiers, let's talk about David has this, I mean, obviously a tangible family, but also to him, vague connection to Israel, which is sort of raised again by, by Dina, uh, Yoav's mother, David's cousin, getting back in touch. Back in the past, Dina's father and David's father have obviously like gone their separate ways. Well, the they? war took them different yeah. ways. Yeah. yeah, 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 very much so. I mean, you know, it's it's the you know two paths of European post-war you know survivor emigration. You know, certain people went to Palestine, certain people went to went to the states, and so the family in that sense got split. So it's you know part of the book is following those two branches of the family and how they developed on either side. And yeah, I mean that 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 to me is a uh, is is a fundamental part of the book. You know, the question of what are your allegiances? You know, on the American side, of course, ethnicity is the is is the dark secret of of American identity. You know, it's very difficult to have an identity in a democracy, right? You can either because what do you identify with? Do you mm-hmm. identify with a a framing document, a constitution? I mean, who can identify with words? You know, and 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 certainly some people will tell you that who can identify with words written by you know, white slave owners who were just attempting to shield themselves from a crazy British king. And uh, in a sense, you know, the, the white ethnic identity in the United States, which people can condemn as being a prime motivator of a Trump election, right, is also the same thing that people enjoy watching whenever they watch a mafia movie, right? It's the idea of who maintains the social contract, mm-hmm. you know? And the question, you know, answered in America, especially in city neighborhoods, was you take care of your own, you take care of your blocks, it was, you know, your Lonsmannschaften, your, your your groups that you emigrated with. These things held enormous sway, and they held enormous sway for my parents' generation. Mm-hmm. And if they really only break down with my own generation in terms of the degree to which those old world ties have been uh, effaced, you know, by just distance, by people, you know, drifting. And I think, you know, one of the ways in which American Jews can look at Israel is as a authenticating stamp of identity. It's essentially saying, well, here is actually, you know, a, a Jewish national project that licenses our difference here in America. Mm-hmm. It's also a deeply authentic way of being, right? I mean, and, and that's, that's, you know, certainly one argument that American Jewry has had. And I think that that's how David King perceives that. It's a license or justification for his own stance of it's me against the world. So let's bring in then Yoav and, and I was going to say his friend, but he's not really his friend, he's sort of army Conrad Uri. Let's talk about their experience in the army then. You know, they're both clearly, they've, they've finished their service and there's this sort of ritual where everybody that comes out of the army goes off and mm-hmm. travels for a bit, right. which seems like a sort of nice gap year, but really I guess they're basically, well, they both have some sort of form of PTSD, I guess. Right, I mean, you know, you want to get into a fight in Israel, you don't even have to talk about politics or you can just say PTSD, and, you know, a vast segment of the Israeli population, I would say the majority, would say, you know, it doesn't exist. It's like ADHD. It's something, mm-hmm. you know, you guys made up. Yeah. You know, because it's very difficult to say our entire society has PTSD when you say that, you know, everyone serves. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, Israel, which is a place that has a lot of, where so many things, especially with regarding to military service, are officialized and ritualistic. Yeah. You know, you have your, your induction ceremonies and you have your, you know, your terms of service. And, and there are all of these ideas that, you know, of where you serve being in somehow 
some emblem of how you, of the life you would live outside of the army because a lot of the contacts and connections you make inside the army are job contacts for, for, for afterwards. You know, one thing that isn't organized or isn't, uh, doesn't have any you know, system about it is in fact this time afterwards. It is something that's deeply unofficial and is really, um, it's really kept on the level of tradition as opposed to, you know, something that's state-sanctioned. And a lot of it has to do with things that, you know, Israelis kind of don't want to talk about. You know, which is to say they're in a country where, you know, and, and, and I, I should, of course, I feel, you know, stupid even saying this, but of course, everything I'm saying now, saying that obviously their position is vastly superior to the position of Palestinians living in the occupied territories, Palestinians living in Gaza. But I'm saying from the perspective of an Israeli soldier, someone who has his passport is not recognized in every country. You know, it's not a country you can just drive out of. You know, you have to fly out of there and you have to fly to a fairly distant country in order to somewhat be welcome. So it's the first time that these people have been abroad. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of times it's the exact opposite of a lot of other people's experiences in life where, you know, a lot of people go through their lives and say, you know, this is the first time I've met a Jew. For an Israeli, it's like this is a lot of time, the first time they've met someone who's not Jewish. And so in a lot of ways, this is an opening of their horizons. And um, and I wanted to write about these these two guys who you write aren't friends, are just, you know, they're, they're thrown into a military unit and they have to deal with each other. And in fact, you know, one saved another's life or he saved, you know, Yoav's life and and, and, so and they both resent that. They both totally. They, totally resent they, they completely that, yeah. resent that. Right, right. And they're also from, you know, from different kind of socioeconomic lives. They're from <laughs> like, geographically different things. I mean, Yoav is a city kid. Uri is from the Negev. He's from, you know, Netivot. It's like a Nika, a Moshav outside of Netivot. Like he's, he's from the desert. You know, he's much more of a Mizrahi, an Arab Jew. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's uh, they come from these very different worlds, but they're sort of thrown together. And I think that, at least from Yoav's perspective, I wanted to write a character who's coming to political awareness. There's so many novels out there where there, you know, where there is a political bent to the novel, where you feel like the the writer is trying to convince you of something politically. And there are very few few books, right? And it was, you know, it was my folly that I was trying to write one that follows a character coming of political age, mm -hmm. actually realizing these are the ideas that I was raised with. This is why they might be wrong. This might be right. This might be the corrective to how I was raised. I'm not really sure how to negotiate the transition, and I'm not really sure what effects of making that transition are going to have on my relationships back home. And it's that classic thing of having to leave your home to see your home clearly. And I think that that's, that's what I wanted to have Yoav do. I wanted, you know, I wanted, you know, Brooklyn and Queens being the necessary catalysts for him to actually reflect back on Israel's own policies. And the Bronx. I don't know why I always leave out the Bronx <laughs> and Staten Island. I wanted to talk about how, specifically this part, the their the service in in the IDF, how you went about researching that. But perhaps for a, for a different prism, I recently interviewed the writer Nicole Krauss, and mm -hmm. we talked about her, the reception of her work in Israel mm -hmm. as an American Jewish writer. And I wonder, the same question to you, really, like how you find your work received. And this one's obviously just coming out, but you're writing mm -hmm. about... Israeli men serving in the war, serving in the army, mm -hmm. something that, I mean, I guess you've not had to do because I've of circumstance, it, no. you know? Yeah. Yeah, 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 very much so. I mean, in terms of my own research about the book, it's it's all based on family, on, you know, on cousins who, mm -hmm. who served. Um, and uh, look, I mean, I, I, you know, my belief about reception of a book, you know, I don't know what Nicole's answer was, and I'm sure it was, um, you know, I'm sure it was accurate to her experience. You know, my own experience is that the people who read books in every country are pretty much alike, you know, and that the people who would really be pissed off at me aren't going to read this thing in the first place. With regard to Israel, again, I mean, I, I think that, look, the, there's an arrogance, certainly, 
in writing about military service when you know I myself haven't served. But I also believe there's an arrogance in absolutely everything. I mean, mm -hmm. I've never also been a tech billionaire, but I wrote a 600-page book about it. You know, I mean, I think that you know, the, call it something else other than arrogance. It's a little bit more polite, but it's sort of necessary to the imaginary projection of yourself. I mean, I'm I'm not from the auto fiction school mm -hmm. that says you know I need to write about my life because what happens to me is so interesting to everyone because what happens to me is not interesting in the least. I mean, it would at most be interesting to like my brother, my sister, my parents, but not in a positive way. Would it be <laughs> interesting? You know, so I, I, I will always reserve the right to project myself into, you know, into other selves. And, and, and I do think that the way that that, that said, I think that, you know, you, you do need to earn some credentials to do that. And I think, but I think that comes from research. And I think that also comes from, you know, from, from at least understanding the moral stakes involved. I, uh, in terms of like reception, again, I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, the Israeli left is actually more critical of their own politics mm -hmm. than the American left is critical of Israeli politics. And I, when I say critical, I mean, there's a difference between criticism and anti-Semitism and, and the true critique in terms of like policy critiques, not just condemning, but saying like, this is actually what should be done and this is how it should be done. You know, I mean, that, that to me, the Israeli left, you know, or, 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 or what is left of the Israeli left is actually, you know, doesn't need my help, doesn't need actually the, the help of any left of any country, except that, you know, they might need our support, but I don't think they need my help as to, you know, direction as to what to do. In terms of, you know, in terms of, of, of someone reading, I mean, I think that I was trying to do two things that have never, that have never been done in American Jewish fiction and that are rarely done in Israeli fiction. You know, one is that is, is writing really about the time after the army, which is something that, that or writing about Israel in general mm -hmm. in the time after that, which is certainly not something that, that the Bello, Roth, you know, Cynthia Ozick generation did. You know, their subject was really, you know, American Jews in America. So I think Israel is, is very much more a subject of my generation. But really, it was about showing Israel as it exists. You know, and my, my sense of Israel as it exists is a country that doesn't, feature what we all understand as the Ashkenaz picture of, of quintessential Jewry, which is to say, you know, the Hasid with the Strymel and the Payas and the Tzitzit and the whole, you know, thing and the, the black coats, right? It, you know, uh, uh, Israeli society is now uh, majority Mizrahi, you know, uh, meaning, you know, Israelis who are descended from Jews from Arab countries. Uh, many of them, including the characters in the book, grew up in households that speak Arabic as a native language. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, in Israel, the word, you know, Ashkenaz, right, which is, you know, a European Jew, right, the guy with the beard and the yarmulke is really a synonym for a slang synonym for weakness. You know, when I say, you know, maybe peace, maybe this, maybe this, they say, don't be such an Ashkenaz, meaning don't be this kind of European humanist bleeding heart. My family grew up in Morocco. My family grew up in Yemen. My family grew up in Egypt. My family grew up in Iran. I know, quote unquote, these people, and I know that there's nothing you can do to deal with them, right, because these all come from families who were kicked out of these countries between the 50s and the 80s. And that is a hardline right-wing force in Israeli life. And it's, so its politics are different. Its culture is different. Its aesthetics are different. And it's a, it's a mode of life that, that hasn't actually been represented in fiction in English and actually isn't very well represented in Israeli literature either. I mean, so much of Israeli literature actually of the, of the 70s was, or not so much, there was a small faction of Israeli literature in the 70s that was trying to overthrow the Ashkenaz hegemony, you know, the European hegemony. And they called themselves, you know, Hapantarim uh, Shachorim, you know, the Black Panthers. And th these were, you know, Arab Jews who were saying, we're tired of this kind of humanist Yiddishkeit Kafka bullshit. Like, get Europe out of here. Like, let's talk about, we're Jews in the Middle East. Let's talk about what that means. And I, I, I wanted to kind of engage with those ideas because those are really much more 
in my mind, the facts on the ground than these sort of 20th century looking Western humanist Ashkenaz ideals, which I think are beautiful, but they're tainted with the the with the mark of martyrdom. They're sort of tainted with the Holocaust. And you want to, I wanted to put that aside and look at um, another phenomenon altogether. And there's clearly a class element there as well. Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they would say, in fact, in fact, the some of the the, the arguments of, of Mizrahi society in Israel are very, very close to the arguments of, of, of black Americans, mm-hmm. you know, Hispanic Americans, which is, say, you know, being, you know, systematically discriminated against in university admissions, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and you know, in a lot of ways, some of the early statehood things, um, you know, from the very beginnings of, 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 of Israeli statehood and even a little bit before it, you know, you had all of these movements like the Canaanite movement, mm-hmm. which was essentially to say, we shouldn't have a Jewish national home like a Zionist. You know, we should have this sort of pan-Canaanite Jewish Arab homeland that talks about our common roots in this culture and the common linguistic roots. And, and, and so I, you know, I wanted to really show a different face. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Joshua Cohen. We're talking about his latest novel, Moving Kings. 
And Joshua, moving on to the the third part of the book, we haven't really said, but the book's split into roughly three parts, and the first part focusing mainly on David King, the second on Yoav Anuri, and the third part introduces another character, mm-hmm. Avery Luther, or Imamu. He's... Well, tell us, tell us who he is. He uh, is a guy who, you know, he grew up... I made up the neighborhood. It's sort of... Because uh, uh, I didn't want to kind of do a specific neighborhood thing, but it's, it's, it's... If you follow the geographic coordinates, it's kind of exactly on the scene between Brooklyn and Queens. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he lives in his mother's house, and he worked for years for the Port Authority, which is, you know, the bridges and tunnels... Uh, around New York that lead out to the outer boroughs. And he's a toll collector. And, you know, which, you know, maybe was a heavy-handed move again. But, you know, toll collectors, I think, you know, they, they deserve their representation as well. There's also this, and, uh, this lovely bit there where he's specifically discriminated against by having to work in the tunnels rather than the bridges. Right, exactly. He has to work underground. He's sort of kept underground and not, or, or at the entrance, the mouth to the underworld and not allowed the fresh air of the bridges. As if the air around the bridges is that clean. But, yeah. And he, he um, you know, he, he follows a, you know, a trajectory that might have become a little bit of a cliche, but actually is very, very true uh, of a certain cohort. I mean, he, he was uh, sent to Vietnam, and so he has his own kind of military experience, but it was not a military experience where he felt that he identified with the cause, mm-hmm. like Yoavin Uri. He was sent there, and, uh, and he believes that he was sent, especially into the situations he was sent in because of his race, because he's black. And he comes out, and he um, gets radicalized, but in a certain way, not in the way that we understand radicalization now, which is, you know, this this Islamist, you know, let's blow stuff up radicalization, but in a, you know, late 60s American um, city Muslim way, mm-hmm. you know, in Elijah so Muhammad nation way. of Islam. Nation of Islam, yeah. right. And and he converts, and, um, and he lives a life until he gets really injured, and in a robbery attempt, and he, he has some pain afterwards. And he begins, uh, you know, abusing um, prescription opiates, and then he moves on to, to drugs on the street once his insurance sort of fails him, which is, you know, again, sadly, a you know, pretty typical story. And, uh, and at a certain point, he can't make the payments on his mother's home, and he needs to he begins eviction proceedings against him. And the, uh, the difference uh, really with him is that he refuses to leave, or he refuses to leave without a fight. And, uh, and that's really the last act of the book. And um, and so, you know, I, I see him very much as a, you know, not just as a product of things that I have not experienced, like like Vietnam or like conversion to Islam. But I see him as a product of something I have experienced, which is he, he really is a he is a city. Uh, he's a city guy who has a city job who uh, which is a good job in New York is a city job. You know, a Port Authority job is, is it, you know, it, it pays well and it is a um, and, and it was a middle class job. For a long time, mm-hmm. and and a unionized uh, job, and a unionized job, job, right, yeah. right, until until you know they invent pretty much any way to kick you off those roles, mm-hmm. and you know one of them is a drug test, and that's what he fails, and so for me it was really that that sort of city existence, that way that you sort of can rely on your city to sort of employ you, and you can rely on that employment to guarantee you a certain way of life, and then having it all sort of collapse, and um, and then being unable to to kind of fight. The powers against it. At the same time, I see him also as a, a generational remove, in the sense of you know he doesn't have the political language of uh, people my age. You know he has a political language of real resentment, of you know of truly truly felt resentment, mm-hmm. and in a sense you know um, a corrupted ideology which is really born of of pretty bad you know not only bad oppression but also bad run of luck. You know, and I think that um, I think that that mix 
to my mind, was very potent in in certain neighborhoods that I, I grew up around and and certain um, and certain worlds that I saw, especially with the rise of, of Farrakhan, and um, and 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 his um, you know and his mosques in, in, in the city. And we can bring back in Yoav and Uri here because you know obviously on the behalf of of David King's company, they're basically not only are they moving, mm-hmm. you know, removal men as we call them over here. But they're basically doing the eviction. They're they're removing the people from these sort of mm-hmm. repossessed properties. And Yoav basically comes to the realization that you know that what he's doing in these houses is basically similar to what they were doing in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that sort of connection. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you call it a connection because I feel like you know we live in this world where people think that increasingly that metaphors are sort of mathematical equations mm-hmm. or that there's some sort of scientific one-to-one mapping, you know, yeah. you know that, that gentrification equals Israeli occupation, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, is, yeah, and, yeah. and, 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 well, and I've really, noticed that in some of the reviews. Right. And, and really, you know, I, I think of metaphors as, as sort of car accidents, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of take thing A and you take thing B and you smash them into each other and, and you look at the kind of chaos that results and how you perceive the result of that collision sort of diagnoses your own politics it's it's how you react to that comparison mm-hmm. that that I find interesting, and so you know I think that a, a character who has gone through these two experiences is bound to find some connection between them, because um, be, because they involve some of the same outward physical actions, and um, and he really sees sort of some of these same same scenes. These scenes repeat themselves of you know tearing people out of their homes, people refusing to leave, you know. And, uh, the, you know, the robbing of someone's home while you're kind of taking some of their merchandise out, slipping stuff in your pocket. And I think that, that, that he begins seeing the ways in which countries, which, which people structure, you know, their legal systems to essentially, you know, legalize things that are morally crimes. And I think that, that this for him is a, um, is a point at which he uh, is a point of his political awakening. And I think it's the point at which he begins understanding for the first time that there's something different, that there's a difference between something that's legal and something that's just. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, um, for most people, I think, you know, it's easy to gloss over. Of course, there's a difference, you know, like, you know, in this world, you get the law, in the next world, you get justice, right? That kind of thing. But, but I think that seeing someone understand the difference between the two and seeing someone kind of live the difference between the two and understand that, that he himself is responsible for actually doing something and yet he's not responsible because there's no legal repercussions to mm-hmm. what he's done is um, so so that any any kind of recompense he can make any atonement is in fact on him there's no official you know punishment except self punishment right that really weighs on him and i think that that he tries to figure out what that what that situation entails on the other hand he has his you know, friend uri who you know, who, I mean, you know, this isn't exactly a book that can be spoiled. So we'll say that, you know, during the time when they're trying to evict Imamu, Abi, uh, there's this sort of standoff and there's this conflagration and the cops come and I really, and, and, and the cops end up kind of shooting Uri, you know, who's this dark guy who's screaming in a language that they don't understand, but sounds to them maybe like it's Arabic and they shoot him. Mm-hmm. And I really see the, the, the Uri death as, as a sort of opposite side to where it can go. It's almost suicide by cop. Yeah. It's almost like he's kind of throwing himself out there because he doesn't know how to live in a world. He doesn't have the vocabulary to live in a world where the acts that he was asked to do, the acts that he not only were told were legal, that wasn't even a question, but were told were like moral and necessary <laughs> to the survival of a culture, that those things were in fact immoral 
and in fact, you know, contributed to, to, to so much pain and suffering for people whom he didn't even consider human at the time. And I'm glad you brought that up because obviously, again, I didn't want to sort of get into spoilers for the book. But yeah, that part reminded me. And it's, you know, it just so happens that we're recording this today on the day that, you know, shit's going down in Las Vegas as well. But I was particularly reminded of, you know, things like Ferguson and that mm-hmm. sort of like, yeah. you know, extrajudicial murders by police that have been going on. That's sort of what I was reminded of at that point. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the militarization of, 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 of our streets. I mean, you know, on, on one hand, you know, you have, you know, this happened, you know, last night, right? Mm-hmm. You see this shooter that we know is like one shooter who, who opens up on an entire crowd at a music festival. And then you read that, you know, a, a SWAT team neutralizes him. I like this, this, this verb, you know, immediately. And, and, you know, that's good. You know, that if they hadn't, many more would have been, you know, been killed. But it's, it's, it's also the militarization of the police forces and the militarization of daily life. That, that, that is also an interesting subject to me. So it's not just how the individual sort of breaks and how then the individual has recourse to firearms in order to, like, you know, to, to, to somehow more deeply impress their rage on the world. It's also how the response to it creates a certain military presence on, on streets and creates its own climate of fear. And, and I was thinking a lot, actually, about, you know, when I was writing the book, especially in the early days of, of you know, after the Boston Marathon bombing, then they shut down all of Boston, and suddenly you're seeing tanks on the street and you're seeing people in military gear. And it was the first time that, that, that I'd really seen that with the exception of a presence down uh, at, at, on 9-11 down, down at Ground Zero. And that, it, it's also that militarization of daily life that, that I really wanted to write about and the way in which we somehow we rely on it because its antagonist has become so present, which is to say, you know, the individual who breaks and has recourse to, to firepower. Just going back to the the idea of the um, you know the the evictions replicating the the occupation, mm-hmm. and I don't know if this is even more of a stretch, but there was there's a scene in the book where we first get to see you know David's facility, his warehouse, mm-hmm. and right. he's got you know he's got all of these various units where there's all of these you know piles and piles of stereo equipment and piles and piles of furniture, and I was reading that and thinking of two things, and one of them was you know. Storage wars. I've sort of seen episodes of storage wars. I don't know okay. how that was, but the other thing, more, more, you know, more seriously, was those pictures of you know piles of shoes and piles of suitcases mm-hmm. from from you know from the Holocaust as mm-hmm. well. I mean, was that in your mind? I mean, I, I definitely you know had some of those Im- some of that imagery in mind. You know, I'm not just saying this answer because I'm in London, and this is probably a boring answer anyway. But one of the things I really thought about is is you know. Our mutual friend is the Dickens novel, mm-hmm. right? Which you know most people read and sort of don't understand. You know what is this? This dust man. He makes a fortune out of dust. What is this? You know, and the idea that you would buy or steal people's dust, right? And you would collect it in these enormous mounds, and that you would do so because they made cheap bricks out of dust, and you would sell the dust to be made into bricks. So I was actually thinking about those scenes in Our Mutual Friend, which are just sort of like, I will steal shit, sometimes shit that nobody wants, mm-hmm. and it will be a mystery to most of the public about how I convert it into wealth, you know? So I was kind of thinking about those, those, those systems. The, 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 the imagery, though, yeah, I, I did have ideas of that imagery, though I also just did have these ideas of, of, of the individual storage lockers when you open them and the way in which they seem like stage sets mm. or dioramas, like if you go to like a natural history museum. You know, I always liked, you know, going to natural history, like I, I can't even conceive of a time when people thought that 
you know, dioramas in a natural history museum, like, looked interesting? Like, they just, have they, haven't they always looked corny? Mm -hmm. That there was sort of always this, you know, strange, you know, creature, like an anteater, which always had its, like, you know, nose up and was always posed in that way. I was kind of thinking of these, like, strange nature dioramas where you're almost interrupting these scenes of life. But also those rooms where it's like, this is a room from the 1950s, and there's like a, you know, there's a barrier over it, so you can Mm -hmm. look into the room, but you can't actually... Right, right, as if if everyone lived having bought everything at once. Mm -hmm. You know, like everyone went to the equivalent of Ikea in 1950-whatever and bought everything made in the same year. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was thinking a lot about about this stuff, but I was also thinking about, you know, storage. You know, it's just amazing that storage places exist. There are these buildings that just take up space mm-hmm. with shit that, you know, people don't want to keep in their own spaces. And um, I think a, a large part of my interest in them actually came up with, um, you know, there, there are these two storage companies in New York that kind of people, some of they just, they ran effective marketing campaigns, you know. One just had sort of like witty slogans, you know, and the other one just really um, painted their buildings in interesting ways. So they didn't look like these ugly gray, you know, wartime pillboxes just sitting in the middle of somewhere. And I remember saying that, like, this isn't enough. You can't just paint this shit, you know? And, uh, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, and various stories would crop up of, you know, people, you know, living in their in their storage facilities, mm-hmm. people kind of, you know, dealing drugs out of their moving facilities. And so I have storage facilities. So, yeah. But it's not that sort of final victory of capitalism, isn't it? It's not like you've got too much stuff. What does that tell you? Perhaps you should buy less. No, it's yeah. we've got this place. You can put the stuff that you right. can't perhaps, fit into your own and house and another you, place. Perhaps you can pay rent yeah. on your inability to control <laughs> your own expenditure. Sure. And and not only that, but also once you default on it, you know, then it belongs to the storage mm. unit and then they auction it. And um and yeah, yeah, there is there is that that sort of there is that sort of element in it. I mean, there you know, the, the, and you're right. The, the, the storage wars or any of these reality TV show kind of things. And it's funny how you know those things are always this. They, they always keep the truly sad stories sort of off off of those you know off of those things. But I always thought it was like uh, uh, I always thought if you could make the real storage wars, you know. Where someone like truly defaulted and is going to lose everything that they yeah. own, and then yeah. they open up the thing and see what you've wanted. There's a guy living in there, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I think that's about it from me. But could I get you to read a little bit of Moving Kings before we finish? Sure. Yoav sure. was moving between Harlem and the Village, Staten Island and the Bronx. He was trucking across the Verrazano, the Throg's Neck, the George Washington, or coming through the Lincoln Tunnel because four, five, and six-axle trucks were prohibited from using the Holland heading to Jersey to load a whole apartment into the hold of a 12-footer, to unload all the foam-cushioned contents of a brownstone packed inside a 21-footer, in a tractor-trailer towing an entire office, an entire office building, in a pickup dropping off potted rubber trees and sacks of mulch, in a cargo van containing chandeliers for a midtown penthouse and Hampton's summer bicycles. The traffic flowed like the rivers, sometimes south, sometimes north, and sometimes in both directions simultaneously, which was sometimes not at all. A group of guys go out hard, swarming the houses of strangers, taking the furniture apart, taking the furniture away, breaking shit by accident and not by accident, committing petty theft by accident and not by accident or always petty, leaving everything empty, leaving everything a mess. Who would have guessed that the army had been training him for moving? Which meant that moving was what? A duty? A calling? A job? Another occupation?
A pregnant couple transitioning from a single-room situation to an extra-room situation. A pair of grown siblings who'd already evacuated their geriatric parents into assisted living from out of the classic six condo they were looting. The customers, they'd lead the way in a taxi up front and the moving truck would follow just behind, taking the transverse through the park across town, from where the sun rises on the Upper East to where it sets on the Upper West. No matter who drove or rode, Yoav would be sitting bitch in the middle. This was always the fragile time, the breakable time, the time of slip and slide and jostle, the ride between the old apartment already moved out and the new apartment not yet moved into, during which life itself would come to feel like just another vehicle set in motion between unrelated emptinesses. For a moment, your burdens were suspended. For a certain span of mileage, you were weightless. You were free. So I've been talking to Joshua Cohen about his latest novel, Moving Kings, which is out in the UK from Fitzcarraldo Editions. Joshua, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.